Let's now open our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. Last Sunday we began to consider the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, and we read from the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew and Luke. This morning we read from Mark. So Mark 14, we're going to read verses 17 through 31. So this is the same narrative about the last Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve, and as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread, and blessed and brake it, and gave to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more the fruit of the fruit of the vine, until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock croweth twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. We read God's word that far. Let's consider this morning the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 29 and the first part of Lord's Day 30. Lord's Day 29, do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof, appointed of God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ. Why then doth Christ call the bread his body? and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul, the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Christ speaks thus not without great reason. 
namely, not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink, whereby our souls are fed to eternal life, but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him, and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to his human nature is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as you know, there is a long-standing controversy in the Christian church about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. If we go all the way back to the night when our Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, the apostles teach us in the Gospels and epistles that they wrote that our Lord Jesus instituted a simple supper of bread and wine and commanded us to eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of him. And that's all. A very simple, straightforward supper of remembrance. But there was one particular thing that our Lord said that night to his disciples in that upper room that has been hotly debated throughout the centuries of the Christian church all the way up to today. And that was when he said about the bread, this is my body. And about that cup of wine on the table, this is my blood of the New Testament. As we read in Mark 14, verses 22 through 24. And the controversy has been whether Jesus was speaking literally or symbolically, whether Jesus meant that in the physical sense or in the spiritual sense. And that has been debated now for about 2,000 years. But that controversy came to a head, as you also know, in the 16th century, 
in the great reformation of the church. As a reformed church, we believe that was a great event that was brought about by God himself who raised up reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and many others because the church had become corrupt. One of the corruptions was in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. The simple supper of bread and wine and remembrance of Christ had been totally corrupted together with the gospel. So God raised up reformers. Now, those reformers did not all agree amongst themselves about the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther had his view. Ulrich Zwingli had his view. John Calvin had his view. And they disagreed with each other sometimes very hotly. However, they were all united. And they all agreed in this, that the Mass is a corruption. Now let me make just a few practical remarks before we get into the body of the sermon this morning. As I study this Lord's Day, a couple of things, a few things come out to me practically for us to consider. First of all, it strikes me at how important it is for us to know our church history. Do we know our church history? Do we read about church history? Do we study it? Do we know what happened in the past? There are 2,000 years of church history before us. It's important for us to know the struggles, the reformations that happened in the past so that we do not forget. In the second place, what strikes me in this Lord's Day is that we have here a very striking condemnation of false teaching in this Lord's Day. The Heidelberg Catechism generally is not highly polemical. It is not frequently attacking the false doctrines. But in this Lord's Day, we find that striking expression that the Mass is an accursed idolatry. That reminds me of what the Church Order of the Reformed Churches requires of all ministers and elders in Article 55. You can find it in the back of your Psalter. It requires this, to ward off false doctrines and errors that multiply exceedingly through heretical writings, the ministers and elders shall use the means of teaching, of refutation or warning, and of admonition, as well in the ministry of the word as in Christian teaching and family visiting. So it is required of me as your minister, and you must expect that of me as your minister, to refute false teachings. That requirement of the church order is based on scripture. There are many, many passages in which the apostles require of ministers to refute false teachings, such as Acts 20, where the apostle Paul warns the elders of Ephesus about wolves who might creep in to the flock and teach false doctrines. In the third place, what strikes me practically about this Lord's Day is that while we are going to critique false doctrines of a church out there, we must not neglect to critique ourselves right here. That's something that we do very often, I think. But as we critique and condemn false doctrines there, we must first search right here within our own hearts. We must not think that it's impossible for errors to creep into our own souls. 
It's very possible, and it happens. So we must first look in our own hearts and examine ourselves at what errors we have been deceived by. And then fourthly, we must bear witness to those in the Roman Catholic Church in particular this morning, but bear witness to all those outside of our church who hold to serious errors such as the Mass. And we are to do that with humility. So I call your attention to the spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper with those things in mind. Notice, first of all, the spiritual supper. Secondly, the only sacrifice. And thirdly, the visible pledge. Going back to that night in the upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. What did Jesus mean? Why did he say that? When you are sitting in your home with your family around your table and you have bread and wine, you know that bread is just bread and that wine is just wine. And no matter what you say or do to it, that will not change anything. But what about in church when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and the minister holds up that bread and that wine? Does something happen to it? Is it just bread and wine or As the Catechism asks in this Lord's Day, do the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? The answer of the church that is centered in Rome, of which the Pope is considered the head and the leader, is yes. The bread becomes the very body of Christ and the wine becomes his Actual physical blood. It was in the year 1215, almost a thousand years ago, that the church in Rome adopted that as its official dogma. This is not an unofficial teaching, but the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It's a doctrine known as transubstantiation, a fancy word that simply means there is a change of substance the substance of the bread changes into the substance of the body of Christ. And that happens when the priest in the cathedral holds up the bread and speaks the words, this is my body. Now the priests used to speak those words in Latin, and in some places they still do. Those words in Latin are hoc est corpus meum. And when the priests would speak those Latin words very quickly, it started to sound to the people like hocus pocus. And that is the origin of the term hocus pocus. We know that term is a term that is often associated with magic. Because the people thought that when the priest said hocus corpus meum, that he was doing a magical deed. He was actually changing the substance of the bread into the body of Christ. That is their official dogma. Now, they have always recognized that the bread still looks like bread. It still tastes like bread. It still smells like bread and feels like bread and the wine, too. How do you explain that? Well, they explained it this way. The attributes are still bread and wine. All the attributes, the chemical, physical attributes, are still those of bread and wine. 
but the internal, invisible substance and essence of that thing is no longer bread or wine, but the body and blood of Christ. The Catechism explains the teaching of the Popish Mass in Lord's Day 30 with these words, they believe that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine. The form is bread and wine, but the substance is the body and blood of Christ. Because Jesus said, this is my body and my blood. The answer of the Reformed churches is found here in our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 29. Do the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. Just as the water in baptism does not become the blood of Christ, and the water of baptism is not the actual washing away of sin, so also the bread is not changed into the very body of Christ, and the wine is not changed into the very blood of Christ either. The bread remains bread. The wine remains wine. Why does it look like bread, taste like bread, smell like bread? Because it's bread. And it hasn't changed into the physical body of Christ. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that since the bread changes into the body of Christ, when the people eat that bread, they are physically eating the physical body of Christ and drinking his physical blood. In the Reformed churches, we teach that we eat and drink Christ spiritually, not physically. That's the doctrine of Rome. That doctrine is not just an error of interpretation. Maybe some would want to suggest that that's just an error of interpretation. The scriptures say, this is my body, and they wrongly interpret that. It's a a wrong interpretation. But wrong interpretations lead to false doctrines, and false doctrines lead to evil practices. The Catechism rightly calls the Mass an accursed idolatry. The Mass is not just an error of interpretation, but an accursed idolatry. Why? When Rome teaches that that bread becomes the body of Christ, Rome is teaching that that bread is Christ. And since Christ is God, Rome teaches that bread is God. And if that bread is God, under the form of bread, then naturally, Rome teaches its people to worship that bread. That's where the idolatry comes. There is an actual teaching that when you come into the cathedral on Sunday and you see the bread there on the altar, you are to worship that bread. You are to give to that bread the praise, the worship, and the adoration that God commands for himself because that bread is God. You see that false doctrine leads to sinful practice. That's why the Catechism harshly condemns the Mass as an accursed idolatry. We just heard in the law earlier that God commands in the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You must worship me and only me. In the second commandment, he says, You must not make any images and worship me through those images. The Mass does both. 
They have the bread as an image of Christ or God, and they try to worship God through that image. That is idolatry. The truth of the matter is that that bread is not the body of Christ, physically and literally. Neither is the wine his blood. Christ is not there physically and literally. Christ is in heaven, the Catechism says. That's what we celebrated last week on Ascension Day. That Christ, in his human nature, has ascended. He has gone up in glory and triumph. He sits at the right hand of God. That's where he is to be worshipped, spiritually. Not in the Mass. Our Belgic Confession, which is one of our other three forms of unity, also condemns the Mass in Article 35 when it says, We reject all mixtures and damnable inventions which men have added onto and blended with the sacraments as profanations, profaning of the sacraments. Now, as I indicated in my introduction, let me make two practical comments here. First of all, when our catechism condemns the popish mass as an accursed idolatry, we have to understand that the catechism and we, as Reformed people who hold to that catechism, are not condemning every Roman Catholic to hell. That's not what the catechism is doing, and that's not what we are doing. We don't do that. We don't condemn anyone to hell. God does that. Only God knows who deserves to be punished in hell. And only God has the right to condemn someone to hell. The catechism is not doing that. What is the catechism doing? The catechism, and we who hold to it, are issuing a very strong warning to those who go into the cathedral and who worship that bread. The catechism is issuing the warning to them. That's idolatry. That's a sin. That's wrong. That in the first place. In the second place, when the catechism here points the finger at the popish mass and says, that is an accursed idolatry, we who hold to that are not merely going to point the finger there, but the finger must always first be pointed here. When we say that's an accursed idolatry, we're not saying, we must not be saying, but I don't have any accursed idols. But we recognize that we have our own accursed idols. We are sinners too. That we have also worshipped the creature when we should have worshipped God. What are the accursed idols that linger in our hearts? We must repent of those. Indeed, the Lord's Supper itself testifies that we are sinners. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we don't claim that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves, but we confess, I'm a sinner. I have my own accursed idols. And if not for the broken body and shed blood of Christ, I too would perish. Why then did Jesus say, about that bread, this is my body, and about that wine, this is my blood. If he didn't mean literally and physically, what did he mean? The Catechism teaches us in Lord's Day 29, agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, 
It is called the body of Christ Jesus. Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood because he was making a sacrament. What is a sacrament? There are only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What are those sacraments? Holy or sacred, visible signs and seals of all that Christ Jesus has done to save us from our sins. Those are the properties and the nature of sacraments. They are holy. They are visible. They are signs. They are seals. According to those properties of sacraments, the Catechism says, the bread is called the body of Christ, and the wine is called the blood of Christ. Not that they literally are, but that they are signs and seals of his body and his blood. To use a term from grammar or literature school, as you might remember, Jesus was using a metaphor. A metaphor is like a simile. A simile uses the words like or as. A simile is a formal comparison of two things. If Jesus had said, the bread is like my body, and the blood is like my, uh, the wine is like my blood, then he would have been using a simile. But he used a metaphor, which is even stronger than a simile. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. A metaphor. He didn't mean literally. It was a figure of speech. He meant metaphorically, symbolically. This is my body and blood. And that's, first of all, why he did that. First of all, the Catechism says, to teach us something. Not only to teach us something, but that is part of the reason. The bread and wine are not only metaphors, but they are metaphors. They're not less than a metaphor. They're more than a metaphor, but not less. A metaphor. This bread is my body. It is so similar to my body that the comparison is striking and it should never escape you. Bread. Bread that feeds and nourishes your body, sending nutrients through your bloodstream into all of your body to give you strength and energy and to support and sustain your life. That's my body, my crucified body. Wine. My blood is like that wine, very like that wine. Wine. When you drink that wine, it enriches your life. That wine gives gladness to your heart. It lifts up your spirits when drunken in moderation. My, my blood is like that. But my body and blood are so much, so much greater and better than that bread and that wine. Because my crucified body and shed blood nourish, feed, and sustain you unto eternal life. And they enrich you with the joy of salvation. The joy of the Lord. A metaphor. But more than a metaphor. See, a metaphor is something that just makes a point clearer. The scriptures are full of metaphors. But they're not all sacraments. This is a sacrament. It's more than a metaphor. 
Martin Luther was very, very adamant about that. He fiercely attacked some of the other reformers like Ulrich Zwingli because of that view that the bread and wine are symbols of the body and blood of Christ. Luther attacked that viciously. No, no, we must interpret literally. He said, this is my body. He meant what he said. And yet, Luther disagreed with the Roman view that it changes into the body and blood of Christ. So he said that when Jesus ascended up into heaven, his body and blood became everywhere present. So that the body and blood of Christ are in that bread and under that bread and around that bread, circling it, surrounding it, filling it, because Jesus is everywhere present. That was a mistake. We follow the teachings of John Calvin in regard to the Lord's Supper. John Calvin also rejected the Roman Catholic view, but he also rejected Martin Luther's view, and he also distanced himself a bit from Ulrich Zwingli's view, and Calvin had to take seriously, he felt, what Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. Jesus' body and blood are spiritually present. In the Lord's Supper. That's what Calvin taught. That's what our catechism teaches. That's what our Belgic confession teaches. That's the Reformed faith on the Lord's Supper. The body and blood of Christ are indeed present in the Lord's Supper. But not physically. Spiritually, they are present. You ought to understand why that's important. Because our Lord taught us in John chapter 6, if you recall, in his sermon about himself as the bread of life after he fed the 5,000, Jesus said, John 6 verse 53, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. And when the Jews heard that, they said, What is he talking about? And when his disciples heard that, they said, This is a hard saying. They thought he was teaching cannibalism, that they had to literally, physically eat his muscles and bones and ligaments and drink his blood like a cannibal. But Jesus said, that's not what I'm teaching. I would never teach such a thing. But he wrote, he said, verse 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. If you eat my literal physical flesh and blood, that's not going to help you. The Spirit quickens. The Spirit makes you alive. The words that I speak unto you are spirit and they are life. I'm speaking spiritual words to you. When I tell you to eat my flesh and drink my blood, I'm not just speaking a metaphor. I'm saying you need to do that, but you need to do it spiritually. What does that mean? What is it to eat and drink Christ spiritually. Jesus says, come to me 
and believe on me and embrace my crucified body and shed blood on the cross as your only hope and righteousness and salvation. Then you have eaten me and drunk me. That's what the Lord's Supper teaches us. As the Belgic Confession so beautifully captures it in Article 35, we eat and drink Christ by faith, quote, which is the hand and mouth of the soul. Faith is the hand and mouth of the soul. By faith, you take hold of Christ. And by faith, you eat Christ when you lay hold upon his crucified body and shed blood as your only hope for salvation. That's the teaching of the Lord's Supper. Now there is another error in the Mass that must be exposed and mentioned. Catechism mentions it. The Catechism asks, what is the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? By the way, that's often a question we ask, isn't it? When we want to know about another denomination or another church, we want to know what is the difference between what we believe and what they believe. It's a good question. We ought to inquire into that. When we have interactions with people of other churches, what is the difference between what they believe and what we believe? And the Catechism is here going to show us the difference between what the Roman Catholic Church teaches and what we teach. And it points out a second significant error. The Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. The teaching of the Mass is that the Mass is a repetition of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, an unbloody repetition. And if you don't partake of that Mass, then you don't have the forgiveness of your sins. That explains a lot about the Roman Catholic Church, doesn't it? It explains, for example, why they call their pastors priests. Why do they call them priests? The Bible doesn't refer to ministers as priests, but they call their ministers, their local ministers, priests, because they believe that that minister performs a sacrifice. That's what priests do. They make sacrifices. They believe that the Mass is a sacrifice, an unbloody sacrifice, a repetition of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That explains why they have an altar in the Roman Catholic Church. And when you hear about a Roman Catholic couple going to get married, they say they're going to the altar. Why do they have an altar and not a pulpit? We don't have an altar here. If you look in a Roman Catholic Church, you see right there, center stage, the altar, and off to the side, the pulpit. Because the pulpit is less important And they believe the altar is the most important thing because they have an altar because there's a sacrifice that is happening. There's a priest making a sacrifice. And now that explains, too, 
that they believe the bread changes into the body of Christ and the wine changes into his blood. So when the priest says, Hocus corpus meum, this is my body. Now what does he have there on the altar? There is Christ. He has Christ there on the altar. And whereas on the cross, Jesus offered up himself, in the Roman Catholic Church, the priest offers up Christ. Daily. Repeatedly. Again and again. Thousands and thousands, millions of times, they believe, they have offered up Christ again in the church. Then the people come and they eat that bread after it has been sacrificed. And they believe they are eating his literal physical body that has just right then and there been sacrificed on the altar. They believe that you have to come to the Mass and participate in that or you don't have the pardon of your sins. They teach people then not to look to the cross, but to look to the Mass. Not to put their trust in Jesus' death and resurrection thousands of years ago, but to put their trust in what they see in front of them there on the altar. You must trust in the Mass, trust in the priest, trust in the church. The church has the power to forgive your sins by making the sacrifice of Christ every Sunday and every day in the Mass. And they teach then, you must come and you must participate in the Mass or you don't have the forgiveness of your sins for that day or for that week. And their sins begin to pile up because most Roman Catholics don't attend church as often as they ought to. So their sins begin to pile up and they have lots and lots of unforgiven sins. And what happens then if they die with all those unforgiven sins? They go to purgatory. And they have to suffer for their own unforgiven sins until they have done enough. You see what a blasphemy that is? What a denial that is of the perfect and sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Mass teaches people that what Jesus did on the cross was not sufficient. And what the Spirit of Christ does in our hearts now is not sufficient. You must come and take the Mass, and the forgiveness of your sins depends upon you coming to the Mass. And if you have loved ones now in purgatory, you can also come and give money to the church, and the church will then do a Mass for your loved ones in purgatory to help them step a little closer to heaven. That was the doctrine taught in the days of the Reformation, and the Reformers rejected that whole system, calling it a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Christ on the cross. It's a denial that the sacrifice of Christ was once and for all finished and complete. What does the Scripture teach about that? Listen to God's Word. Hebrews 7, verse 27 says, Jesus needeth not daily as those priests of the Old Testament to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. 
For this he did once when he offered up himself. Jesus doesn't have to offer up a daily sacrifice. Hebrews 9 verse 12. By his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. His own blood once obtained perfect uh, redemption. Hebrews 9, verse 22 through 28. Without shedding of blood is no remission. The Roman Catholic Mass says this is an unbloody sacrifice. No blood, but it is a sacrifice. The scripture says if there's no blood, there's no forgiveness. Without shedding of blood is no remission, no forgiveness. But now, Hebrews 9, verses 22 through 28, but now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice himself. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And if that's not enough, the epistle to the Hebrews almost wants to overwhelm us with texts. So in chapter 10, verse 12, it says again, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Again and again and again. One sacrifice, once, never to be repeated. And the Hebrews is emphasizing that in its own context, because in the Old Testament there were priests, and they did offer sacrifices on the altar, in the temple, bloody sacrifices, daily sacrifices, again and again and again and again. That was the Old Testament. All of those sacrifices of the Old Testament were types and shadows pointing forward to the one sacrifice. None of those sacrifices accomplished salvation. They were only pictures of the atonement, the one perfect act of atonement that Jesus would perform on the cross. And so what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is not a daily reenactment of the sacrifice of the cross. Forgiveness of sins does not depend upon the Lord's Supper. We do not come to church because our salvation and forgiveness depends upon us coming to church to listen to the preaching, to participate in the Lord's Supper. Our forgiveness doesn't depend upon that. It depends only upon the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ once offered on the cross. What is the Lord's Supper? A glorious, wonderful celebration of remembrance of what he did once and for all. What he finished. What he accomplished. And so we do come to church, not because our forgiveness depends on it. We come to church to hear again and again the proclamation of our forgiveness in word and sacrament. That is the food and drink of our souls. That is the means of grace that God uses to strengthen us as long as we live in this world. Finally, the Lord's Supper then is a visible pledge that gives us assurance of our salvation. The Mass does not give any assurance. If you study the catechisms and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, you will find that, in fact, they speak anathema upon churches that give assurance 
they are opposed to assurance. They believe that if people are sure that they're going to heaven, they won't do good works. People can't be sure. They have to live in doubt because that will stir them and motivate them to to merit through good works. That will motivate them to come to church, to take the Mass. But they can't have assurance. They have to be given fear and doubt. They have to fear hell. They have to fear purgatory. Because only then, when they feel the flames of purgatory nipping behind them, will they be scared off to church to take the Mass. They don't say it like that, of course. But that's the idea. But I would argue that, at least in my experience and limited knowledge, most Roman Catholics don't go to church that often. They don't go to the Mass every Sunday. Certainly not every day. And so their sins pile up higher and higher and higher. And they have no assurance that they're going to heaven when they die. They're going to purgatory. And purgatory is not hell, but purgatory is a place of suffering. They speak of it as a place of fire, a place of purging, purgatory, purging, is what happens there, purging through fire. And that's what most Roman Catholics have to look forward to. So one of the practical things I mentioned in the introduction was not only that we have to refute false doctrines, we have to remember our church history, we have to humble ourselves and search our own hearts for our own sins, but then as those who know and have assurance of our salvation, We are to witness to those who don't have it. How do we witness to Roman Catholics? There are over a billion of them in this world. There are many thousands of them here in Canada, even right here in our town. If we encounter them, and we all do, because it's impossible that you don't meet someone of a church of a billion members, we do meet them, then what is our witness to them? Perhaps you have found, like me, that most of them don't really even know what their church teaches. That's something to keep in mind. Sometimes we can go into our witnessing with guns ablazing, knowing what their church teaches and knowing what our church teaches, and full of this knowledge we come ready to blast their doctrine to pieces and we find they don't even know it. That reveals our pride. Don't assume that the person believes everything that we know their church teaches. You have to have that knowledge in the back of your mind when you witness to a Roman Catholic, but you don't assume that that person actually knows all of that or believes all of that. Maybe you've also found, like me, that most Roman Catholics are basically just the typical, contemporary, modern, secular type of person. In other words, Most of them believe that we're all going to the same place. Regardless of what church we are in and regardless of what we believe, that's the general attitude out there. They might not even believe they're going to purgatory. They might not have ever even heard of purgatory. And you might ask them, are you sure that you're going to heaven? Doesn't your church teach purgatory? 
The Lord's Supper is a visible pledge that gives assurance to Christians that all our sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ. What is a pledge? A pledge is a promise. A pledge is an oath. God swears an oath to us in the Lord's Supper as believers. And the oath that he swears to us is this. Just as you see and eat this bread and see and drink this wine, just as sure as you are of that, my beloved children, I also promise you that the blood and body of Christ were broken and shed for you. And all your sins are forgiven. All of them are forgiven. And after this life, I'm taking you home to heaven. The Lord's Supper is a pledge to us. The Lord's Supper gives us assurance and comfort in our earthly pilgrimage. This do in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Every time we take it, we remember what he did. And we find comfort and peace. We know that we're not going to hell. We know that we're not going to purgatory. We know that we're going home to heaven. Not because we go to church. Not because we do good works. Not because we take the Lord's Supper. Not because we go to hear the preaching every Sunday. But because of the precious body and blood that were broken for us on the cross. We have assurance in Christ that after this life we're going home to heaven. Now, as those who have that comfort and assurance, what is the witness that you give to a Roman Catholic? Like the scriptures tell us, we are to be ready to give an answer to every man about the hope that is in us. That's a positive witness. Are you sure you're going to heaven? Doesn't your church teach purgatory? And then there is certainty and comfort for believers that we're going directly to heaven after we die. That certainty is in the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's our witness right there. And May God strengthen us then to give that witness in meekness and humility Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we give thee thanks for all that thou hast done for us in Jesus Christ. We confess that we are guilty of accursed idols as well. We give thee thanks that thou hast sent thy Son to give his precious body and blood for us on the cross. We pray now that thou would assure and comfort our souls, and that having the peace and the joy of salvation, and the hope of heaven, we might go forth as shining witnesses to those around us, bearing testimony to them of the hope that is in us. We pray that thou would be pleased to use our witness, too, to those around us, to draw them also to a true and living faith in Christ, if it is thy will.